It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. As a survivor of sexual assault, I know how difficult it can be to talk about the subject. The first time it happened to me, I was raped by a stranger and I was barely 17. My parents chose to silence my cries for help, not calling the police or going after the bad guy for what he had done. Experiencing several sexual assaults through the years at the hands of people I knew and living through several marriages where I experienced marital rape took its toll on me as well. On average, there are over a half a million victims, age 12 or older, of rape and sexual assault each year in the United States. One in five women and one in 71 men have been raped at some time in their lives. That's just the cases that are reported and in the U.S. So many go unreported as in my case. And what about the children under 12 who are sexually assaulted, molested, raised in sex cults, taken and used in sex trafficking. There is no way of knowing just how many children have been affected by this. So many of us survivors blame ourselves and wonder why this happened to us. We didn't ask for this. So many suffer in silence and often don't speak about what they endured until much later in their lives. Thanks to things like the Me Too movement and the case against Jeffrey Epstein, More light is being shed on sex crimes, but we are still a long ways away of understanding why these things happen, because we don't talk openly about them enough. When we talked about doing this show, we didn't even realize that it was Sexual Assault Awareness Month. The thing is, why do we need a special month of recognition to have the discussion that we need to have about this particular subject of sex crimes? The more we talk about it and keep talking about it, the more and more we are able to reduce the amount of shame and the stigma that follows so many of us who have experienced it. Why would someone hurt a child in this way? Why would someone rape somebody they claim to love? Why would a stranger sexually assault someone they didn't know? Today, we are going to talk candidly about sex crimes. What makes a person do these things? How important it is to support the survivors and how we can watch out for the signs and maybe, just maybe, prevent another senseless sex crime from happening. I have two of my most wonderful friends joining me today. My often co-host and former defense attorney, Kirk Nurmi, and retired Phoenix Police Sergeant, Darren Birch, who spent many years in law enforcement, and he also spent a lot of time working in the sex crime unit. So before we get this started, thank you both for being here today. Thank you, Robin. Absolutely, thank you. And thank you for for sharing what you did in that uh, intro. I think um, as we sit here in Sexual Awareness Month, it's important for women to feel comfortable and all victims to feel comfortable. But um, your comments highlight the fact that 
even though we're in sexual awareness month, uh, sexual assault awareness month, we probably are unaware of a lot more than that which we are of aware. So I appreciate you sharing that. I would agree. And sometimes it's, you know, it's even hard for me to talk about it. Like I said, as a survivor, it is difficult to talk about it. And I know, Darren, you've spent many, many years working in sex crime. So how long were you working in, in the police force and with sex crimes on a daily basis? Uh, 30 years. For 30 years, I was a cop. And I started, really became a cop because of sex crimes. Something happened to my grandmother. And one of the first cases I had as a, as a beat officer was with just a month on. Uh, however, I also specialized as a sex crimes expert uh, for more than a decade, uh, working both adult sex crimes as well as child crimes. Now, you did this on a daily basis. So if you could kind of explain, because I, I know a lot of people think they know what goes on in law enforcement because they see these things on television and they think that everything gets wrapped up in a 60-minute show. We all know that's not true. So take us through what a normal day would be for you working in the sex crimes unit. Uh, what I'll first do is talk about child crimes because they're both different animals completely in so many aspects as all crimes are different. But in terms of kind of understanding that that horrificness of the child crimes, when I was um, a ch- child crime sergeant, this is after I was a detective, I got promoted, I came back. Uh, there was a week where I never went home for an entire week. I was on call out. So I'd have my 10-hour, 8-hour, 10-hour shift during the day. And then because I was that on-call sergeant with two detectives on, uh, I had 10 detectives on the squad, but two would be on call with me for that week. And then they would rotate out month to month and month. And that week, we literally never went home. I had to take care of my two detectives and relieve them and then would call up two different detectives and help out. Uh, I never went home. It was call after call after call. And that is not unusual. It's not the norm, but it's not unusual either. Uh, they, and again, when I talk about child crimes, I'm not just talking about sex crimes. I'm also talking about abuse and neglect. Um, and that's how our Family Advocacy Center detectives dealt with child crimes. It was all three of those type of crimes, and they're all very different. Uh, but I would say probably the, the, the bulk of those crimes that I was dealing with was the sex crimes. And they're very difficult investigations because when a child discloses a sexual assault, it is more than likely going to be a delayed report. There is no crime scene. There is no witnesses. There is a little boy or girl who has got to a point where they can no longer hold back this horror that they're living in on a daily encounter, and somehow they go to school and they share it with a friend. I'm getting chills because mm-hmm. of that, that's the norm. That's, it's atypical for someone to walk in and see something. Um, so, and when someone walks in and sees something, now you have a witness, you have a crime scene, you have all the components that you can make a case around. You, you have an arrest. Unfortunately, a delayed report from a child, uh, especially when it talks about sex, is so difficult, so difficult to investigate that thankfully, uh, at least in Arizona, we have what's referred to as Title VIII. And back when I did these type of crimes, we had the Child Protective Services and their Title VIII, that specific category of law, gave them the power to remove a child from a home with really reasonable suspicion 
in order to safeguard them, that allowed us to do interviews and do things that maybe forensically we can get a handle on a crime. But sadly, many of the crimes could not be adjudicated. There was not evidence. Um, because of the nature of the, of the criminal, many times they were in-home components. So you had to rely on this Title VIII reasonableness to extract the child from the home in order to ensure their safety. Or you would get some type of um, proof that the father, usually it was a father or some type of male um, family member, would leave and, and you had this guarantee that they would not be coming back. They're very difficult crimes, and most child crime detectives cannot do that detail uh, for over a long term, term. They really can't. It's too daunting, both physically, mentally, and emotionally, because you're talking to little children that are giving you such specifics that you know it happened, and yet you don't have the, the evidence to prove it. And that's got to hurt you as a father yourself when you're seeing that go on. Horribly. And as, as horrible as it is for the victims, um, I want to say one of the most unusual at the time, I thought it was unusual, and I have since learned it's not that unusual, uh, a father had turned himself in uh, having abused his um, son in a swimming pool and gave details of what he did and how he did it. And he turned himself in. And I'm listening to his, and I'm just a patrol cop, you know, a month out. And he's telling me why he turned himself in to our precinct. And I cannot arrest him because, as Kirk can attest, you know, I have nothing to prove his statements, nothing to prove his statements. So I have no body of, of evidence to, to charge him, just his statement alone. But it's so telling, I know it occurred. Uh, and I'm able to get him to voluntarily leave. If he's voluntarily coming down to, potentially place himself in prison for the rest of his life, you know, there is a, uh, a strong belief that he is going to do the right thing and move out. And he's, everyone knows. And now Child Protective Service is involved. But in talking to him, he's a normal person. And we've talked about this. Predators, you know, and again, there's a difference between a predator and someone with a sexual paraphilic trait or some deviant sexual desire. There's a big difference between the two. But he was so wanting to do the right thing because he had violated his trust that the child had in him. He violated his own principles. He violated everything he stood for. I had to ask him, why did you do it then? And he told me, because it consumes my every waking second. That just gives me chills hearing that. But, you know, uh, Darren's comments, especially the last story about the man wanting to turn himself in, the the sh- the the... Shame of all of this, I guess, when we're talking about this particular predilection, this this pedophilic predilection, is that so many of them, and I have conversations, I did sex crimes exclusively for about six years at the at the county public defender's office. And when I would talk to these guys and we would do evaluations and things like that, you would interrogate or question them. But we, when, when the charges were filed, it was the conversation got different, right? Because it was their life. And... It was almost universal, the idea that these people did not want to do this, that the impetus for this or that the seed for this was their abuse, their untalked about abuse. They didn't report. Their parents didn't believe them, what have you. And whether it was looking at child pornography on the Internet, whether it was acting out, whatever it was, these adults all had a, for the most part, had a desire to couldn't do it, not to do it. But 
they had that compulsion in the same way that we have our sexual drives. And it just could not be altered. There was no outlet for them to get help. And that was one of the biggest problems um, I saw that just perpetuates the cycle of, of, of sexual violence. The one thing I noticed, and I hate to say it, it's almost a joke when people think of the Tom Lessers, they, they kind of put them in two groups, the, the priest and the teacher. Mm-hmm. And there is some truth to that. And what I found with pedophiles, um, and there's a difference between a pedophile and a sexual predator, and I'll explain what that is in a bit. But what I found with these um, pedophile is that they either embrace it and they become a teacher, and that purpose of that job application is a fishing hole. And they're the sexual predator because they have that three-pronged test. They have some type of sexual paraphilic uh, trait, some, I'm going to use air quotes to now, a deviant sexual nature. Now, keep in mind, that changes with the norms of society, granted. Um, then they also have the, that sexual paraphilic trait also has the ability to trespass upon someone. For example, someone who's um, masochistic, uh, who is, wants to be dominated, that may be a sexual paraphilic trait, but they're not trespassing on someone, if you get my drift. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third component is the capability of criminally applying themselves. You know, there is a couple mental state at play here, whether it's intentionally, knowingly, what, what have you. So the other type of profession that I see is that priest. And, and even though this is like the beginning of a bad joke, you know, was he a teacher, was he a priest? What I found with that priest type of pedophile is not the sexual predator. It was the individual that understood their compulsion, their obsession, their, there's not, I don't think a word that adequately, adequately describes the intensity of their sickness. And I call it a sickness, and I guess we can always debate that. But they try to put themselves in a position where they will not offend. So to Kirk's point, when he's seeing these individuals and they talk about this, that all makes sense to me. The only thing I would, and again, we've come from different vantage points, clearly, but the one thing I found that even though it is true, there are, all, there are absolutely those individuals who have been victimized um, and have been absolutely uh, did not find help and were not to, I'll say it, they did not become survivors. They no, were well, victims. A lot of times when they try to tell the story, nobody believes them. In my case, my parents said, you know, you deserved it. And there's family as well as as the the establishment, you know, when I came on in '86, you know, I kind of shared this off air. Uh, there was a situation where victims were taken to the hospital of rape, and if it was a issue of consent where there was no violence, they had no physical injuries, and the triage system at a hospital at ER doesn't allow them for them to be seen for hours, and that was the system. So sometimes, especially back in the '80s. The system also failed them. And if all these failures occur, I have seen them absolutely act out, especially when they were abused at a young age. But I would say that of most of the pedophiles that I arrested and that I was able to get uh, candid, or at least I believe candid, um, interviews with, and I, my interviews were actual interviews. They weren't interrogation. They weren't um, com- 
confrontational in nature. They're more of, I hate to use the term, but a carrot. You know, I say, I get, I get what you're saying. And then I would try to relate to them in their world, even though I'm not from their world. And they would be very, it's like finally someone's listening to me because they are, you know, on an island. They feel like they're on an island. But uh, most of those were not prior victims, I found. It was really the children. Most of the children victims I found that when they went into some type of facility, there was always that fear that this victim would become an abuser. And without all the, all the um, you know, the, the support of the family, right. the assistance of law enforcement, the, you know, the care of medical, without that, they could very well end up abusing yeah, I mean, I think there's I think there's a difference, and I had a lot of people throughout my career deny prior abuse, deny it to me. They did. They, well, I'd watch the interviews. They deny it to the police officer, whatever it was. But there was something about taking a psychological test, the the, the risk assessment test that I'm sure you're um, familiar with, and which is a for the, for those who don't know, it's a just a risk of sexual violence acting out. It kind of um, I don't know, put some tangibility to what their sexual issues are, I guess. And so many of those people would deny it until they got in the face of a psychologist taking it, and then they would break down. And that's when that breakthrough would happen, and that's when the admission would happen. I'd see it on the report they, because they could not tell me. They could not tell somebody like you or to, to no matter what stage of the process they were in. We were authority to figures to them. And, but they could tell it to the psychologist, and that's where I saw a lot of those walls break down in terms of being with someone who isn't a law enforcement, isn't involved in the law, and is just there to assess them, and they break down. And, and I think that's when I see a lot more people saying, yes, I was a victim. Yeah, and there's no way I would discount that at all, uh, not at any level, because I, I can say uh, with complete confidence that in domestic violence, which is obviously a different complete animal altogether, but mainly the children, mainly the, that were victims of violence in domestic violence household as a child, absolutely became abusive to their mates and their yep. marriages. Right. And that's, absolutely. yeah, that, that's definitely what we refer to as that cycle. And, and, the, and, and you know, and in, in, when we talk about it in terms of sex crimes, we talk about it in the, um, you know, the sexualized early, right? But I think what you bring up, I think the concept is the same. And I think it's, a, it's a kind of a, a segue into the sexual, more sexual violent things that Robin's talking about, because that violence is almost ingrained. There's an acceptability of violence, right? So if someone in a domestic sexual assault, domestic violence situation has seen this in their household growing up, they're more than likely to think that that's okay. There's a It's normal behavior. Yeah, it's a there's a constant quest and that's that's kind of one of the things that I see sometimes in the victims. There's a quest to normalize what happened to them. And and there's also a normality they they don't feel like you know somebody who's being abusive to their wife or sexually abusive to their wife might not feel like they're a, a sexual predator even though they are because it was normal in their household it was normal in their environment in addition to that and i'm really kind of making your point for you in addition to that as a child it's all about love and they don't understand there's a difference between their their father's love or their mother's love or their uncle's love and that act because this is a loving person 
in their world. You know, this is that their, their care provider, they literally provide them for their world. And so if this love, and you don't know what that means to a child. It's acceptance and attention. It is. Yeah. And, and that love includes now this sexual act. Right. And that's what I found with most of the, again, I'm talking about the, the young victims that I can, um, you know, anecdotally say based on what I've seen in terms of having been victimized by a loved one. And then when they're in some type of group home and they connect with someone, then you see that abuse again because they're acting out that that love. It becomes sadly an abusive situation because it's now sex. Uh, it's, and again, a completely different world. And that's why I kind of prefaced it when we started talking. Child crimes and adult sex crimes, completely different animals in terms of both the victim, the vulnerability aspect, as well as the the, the predator, completely different animal. And again, there's so many different isms and philias, you know, when you're talking about adult sex crimes, because then you're going away from pedophilia, obviously, or perhaps. So it's a completely different animal. It really is. And there is definitely, even though I, I absolutely, with every fiber of my body, I hate um, child molesters, but I have... As much as hate as I have for them in terms of the school teacher, the, per, the, the predator who has that sexual paraphilic nature of pedophilia, who clearly can trespass based on that and is willing to act out on that, I have an absolute sense of passion and sadness and respect, quite frankly, for the individual who has it and does not act on it. Now, when I say act on it, though, I am talking about even the Masturbatory Act, um, I always look at, you know, and again, I'm not a brain trust, but I look at, you know, Pavlov's dog. And when you act out something and you give yourself some type of, um, you know, reward, you know, whether it be a treat, like in, in that, you know, classic mm-hmm. psychology, you know, that we all learned in high school, I think. But that sexual gratification you get with a masturbatory act and you're looking at something that has children in it, which in and of itself is a crime based on, you know, the violation of that child who is in that that publication or picture, what have you, video. Um, That in itself is the criminal act that makes you a predator right off the bat in my book. But you're also teaching yourself that this, you're literally teaching your body this is acceptable based on that reward mechanism you're getting with that act. It's, it increases, it increases exponentially. Um, so I don't have any um, respect or, or cons- I hate to use the word concern, I have concern. I think we all as a community need to have concern uh, because these, these crimes aren't going to go away. No. And these predators are... You know, the use the term recidivism is silly because it's, it's, that's what they are. As a sexual predator, it's 100% recidivism. It's, again, it consumes their every waking second. Um, but again, I kind of segue off badly. These, these sexual predators in adult sex crimes are completely different animals because there's so many different philias that 
cater to what's going on in that world. Many times we talk about power. You know, with, with adult rapists, mm-hmm. it's all about power. It's not about sex. Power and control. It is about power and control, but there's other elements. There is sex in some of these elements as well. There is sexual gratification. Uh, for example, um, an arsonist, which is a completely different type of you know sexual predator. He's not a rapist, but many of the ar- arsonists absolutely have that sexual paraphilic trait where they absolutely get sexual gratification from the fire. Frauderism, people that rub against you in the subways, you know, they absolutely get sexual gratification. Voyeurism, you know, we could go on and on with the isms and the affiliates, but um, there is a common denominator in the sense that they not only have this, and it's not going away. And I don't think there's a single person out there that has an answer to make it go away. Um, there's been people that have used, you know, shock therapy. There's people that use all sorts of things. And castration isn't the answer either. Because uh, most of my rapists had uh, sexual dysfunction. They, 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 they use items to do their sexual assault. Um, the, the answer is absolutely understanding the animal, understanding that... They need to be, and I'll say it, labeled. They are sexual predator, and they're going to go and continue this crime until we as society protect us. And that's probably where we may disagree, my friend. Well, I don't know that I would say that I would disagree with everything you're saying, although I think, and, and you spoke to it a little bit, to me there's a huge difference between uh, thoughts and actions. Okay? 100%. And, and when, we, when we talk about those kind of crimes that involve you know, looking at pictures versus the predatory nature we see of people, for instance, getting on an airplane to go into, go into Jeffrey Epstein's island. That's a premeditated, uh-huh. that's a, 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 you know, that is a predatory act. It's thought out. It's, it's kind of like your, you know, your calculated serial rapist or something like that, right? Absolutely. Now, I tend to be one that believes that if we're really going to get into the idea of, of decreasing sex crime... I actually believe that most people that are incarcerated for sex crime should probably be there for life, particularly pedophilia, because I think it is the kind of thing that cannot be changed or altered. But at the same time, if we really want to stop the cycle, we've got to get in there with the victims earlier before they become that. Because there, if there is one common denominator, and, and, and you've probably been exposed to more of these uh, violent predator types. But I still think there is more likely probably some form of sexual abuse that is at the seed of that that is unresolved, right? And whether they've acknowledged it or not, it's unresolved. And if we want a two-prong approach to me, put those away so they can't reoffend, so we stop making more victims that can become predators and take the victims that are coming out now and make those victims, give those victims what they need, or at least make that available to them so they don't act out. To have real conversations with psychologists, to be able to talk about what they're feeling, because it is unseemly, right, to talk about these sort of things. But at the same time, how else are we going to stop it? Like I said earlier, Mm -hmm. you know, we're unaware of so much more than we're aware of. We cannot really solve the problem until we bring more of it into the into the light of day. Absolutely. You got to get the dialogue going. Yeah. And everything you said, Kirk, I absolutely 100 percent agree with you. Everything you said, absolutely 100 percent. And then if we look at the the victims Mm -hmm. in terms of, 
You know, we've seen that when school is in session, uh, more and more children disclose to teachers um, because they're already in a situation where they, th- th- there's already been someone who's failed to protect them in right. this arena, whether or not th- it was knowingly, which would be a crime, uh, or not, you know, not aware, you know, which could be a crime depending on how reckless it was. Um, there, it, it, either way, their support system failed them at at the home. So where's the next place that children spend a lot of time is at schools. And that's why it concerns me. We've had people on our show on Badge Boys about the idea of doing these COVID days where people, where kids aren't in school, there's going to be more abuse. There's yes. going to be, whether it be neglect, mm-hmm. uh, physical abuse, you know, uh, harming a child because they have anger issues uh, or the sexual, it's going to, it's going to increase. We're going to see, and again, these are all delayed, not all, but, Predominantly, these are all delayed reports, anyways. So, what's going to happen is when we all of a sudden come back into school, you're going to have an uptick on these crimes because then that's when the disclosures are going to occur. So, we really need to be aware of who these predators are. And even though I made the the almost silly analogy of they're either you know teachers or priests, I didn't mean to suggest that at all. I put them in those two categories. It just, could be anybody. Just, just to yeah. illustrate my yeah. point. No, but, but it's it's an access. It's it's a manipulative mm-hmm. access. Uh, Cops, firemen, clearly clergy, clearly um, because again the, the extremes of what, not wanting to offend as a priest and putting yourself in a religious situation and away from the public and so forth, or a teacher where you're actually looking for fishing hole, but it's every profession in between. There's not a profession where there's not somebody who is a, a predator, quite frankly. We ha- I had a cop. He was a friend of mine, truly a, a brilliant homicide detective, um, and I would put him in a category as a, as a predator, even though he didn't have hands-on. Just the fact they had all that material on his computer, child crimes, and as you know, Kirk, every one of those Images is a offense in and of itself in a, a separate ten year In a 10-year presumptive you. term. Wow. And two Mandatory consecutive, I might add. So when I say the whole thing about it consumes her every waking second, I can't even wrap my head around a, a cop, a stellar cop with a 20-year career, homicide, protecting the public, where he's so consumed with it that he's risking everything just to look at that material. And I think that helps illustrate how profoundly compulsive this 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 desire is that's why i think when we talk about this when we talk about pedophilia i think it is that sec- it is on the equivalent although uh, i gotta be careful how i say this but it's every bit as ingrained as our sexual choices is that's why i say it even can't, more so it, it can't be fixed right because you're right because you have all if if somebody said to you and uh, you know you have to stop being heterosexual now you're not going to stop being heterosexual. I can stop the point. act. <laughs> right, right. But you're still, you're going to have the thoughts, you know, what have you. So I guess the point of it is, yeah, that's why I think you've got to throw them, throw, lock them up and throw away the key, right? But that's how strong the compulsion is. That's why you're not going to stop it. So the question becomes, how does it, how does that compulsion arise? If I was talking to that cop, that cop I'd want to know how. How does that arise? And did he, was he an abuse victim that masked it all along and then it just, he had this secret and it just kept going and maybe he was a cop because he wanted to be able to see these images legally, right? Um, There's all that kind of, uh, those kind of issues. So um, it becomes, 
one of those things you just have to be able to willing to be willing to explore all those things. And I hope the listening audience, if if they pick up anything within this this these two these expert fields, is that this can happen to anyone out there. Yes, it can. And you have to, and we always talk about situational awareness and, and people think in terms of, you know, walking to your car, you know, parked in the parking lot in a dark area. And, and that's absolutely true. But situational awareness and being aware is only the first step. When you're at a home environment and you're aware there might be a problem, then you have to acknowledge it. And it's the other A. There's three A's to, to really um, preventing yourself from, or someone else from being victimized. It's the awareness, it's the acknowledgement, and then it's the act. It's not enough to, to be aware that there, there is something. You know, why is you know, Uncle Bob always wanting to babysit? You know, how come they have their private room? How come they lock the door? All these how come, all these red flags, you, you can see and you can be aware. But if you don't acknowledge the threat, and realize that this can happen to you because it happens to people next door. Happens, it's, it's every walk of life. And again, we can't even stress how overpowering this urge is. That once they, if, I, I look at it as like a shark. Once they taste blood, mm-hmm. they will always be tasting blood. And that's how I equate it. And that may be an overstretch, but I really don't think it is in my I don't head. think it is either. And so when you acknowledge that this, it could be real, then how do you act? And depending on the situation, depends on how you act. There are avenues, you know. And again, I know we're talking about child crime specifically at this juncture, but this also applies to um, sexual assault of adults. You know, being in a bar and, and you see your best friend, uh, a guy walks up with a... Um, uh, you know, a seven and seven or a rum and coke is an open glass, and we know not to accept you know these containers. But it's my friend; I'm not going to say anything. Well, at least right now you're aware, right? Right. And then you have to acknowledge that we don't know who this guy is. So how do you act in that situation? You know, it could be something as simple as taking out your phone and saying, "Let me get a couple a picture of you two. If he avoids that picture. That's not just a red flag. That's a, hey, um, she's coming home with me uh, and you're not coming. No pun intended. And, you Um, know, that's how my rape happened at 17. I went to a friend's house, actually their apartment for a Christmas party. And uh, the guy that they introduced me to, Steve, he handed me a red solo cup of beer. I was 17. Yes, I was underage drinking. I took one sip of that beer and I have no knowledge of anything. Roofies. Other than waking up, being tied down to a weight bench and having this guy with one leg and his prosthetic leg up against the wall and he was on top of me assaulting me and I'm grateful that I was knocked out that I didn't have to live through that whole experience but it sucks when you are with friends and you trust somebody so again that thing about the open container about somebody giving you a drink I can tell you from my experience that is something I will never do again because you know it's just And here's the sad part. I just said a sentence where I got to backtrack because I did it again. And what I mean by that, I was divorced at 23. Met a young man, very attractive in the grocery store when I was with my mom. Gave him my phone number. He called me. We went out on a date to the mall walking around. Then we went back to his apartment. He asked me if I'd like a drink. So I had a gin and tonic. I don't remember anything But I had sex with him because I came out of it when we had finished. And here's the really messed up thing about that, guys. 
I have joked about it for many years that that was the one I wished I had remembered. I thought maybe I got wasted, but just a couple of years ago, mind you, I'm 53. This happened when I was 23, 30 years ago. Just a couple of years ago, I sat back and I realized what I was saying out loud. And I went, holy shit, I was date raped again. And somebody drugged my alcohol. But because I wanted to have sex with this guy, or at least I was attracted to him and possibly looked forward to it down the road, I didn't even realize that I had been drugged and raped again. You know, and that's the thing about the culture and the community that we live in. And, and thank God for, um, you know, the hashtag Me Too movement. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, now we're addressing predators based on the power of oh, the even Hollywood R. Kelly. world. And thank you. Yeah. And, and, and that environment. But we also have to deal with the culture within ourselves in terms of the family and this victim bashing. Like, for example, one of the first things you said is, yeah, I was underage. As if that is somehow... You know, well, that's exculpatory what my, for that's what the my criminal. father told me when I exactly. came out. And that's what you we have shouldn't to, have been drinking. Yeah. You deserved it. And I don't know how many. And again, at one point during my career, I was specializing in what's referred to as high risk victims. And it was mostly prostitutes I was dealing with. And I would come on a scene and even the police officer, good people would kind of do the roll of the eyes. You know, it's just a prostitute, you know, like somehow her activity justified you know, any kind of criminal action, let alone it be sexual assault. And, and again, you know, I, my heart bleeds for every single victim, and I know they're survivors, but when I respond, they're victims. Right, at that time Th- at they At that are. time, they are 100% victim until the system, the, 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 the support mechanism within their own home can help them and overcome this horrible crime. Because as you know, it's, it's less about the, the physical trauma as it is the emotional trauma. Oh, yeah. You and I were talking before we started the show and, and just revisiting parts of that from my younger years just brings that emotion right to the surface. Even now, I'm holding back from letting those tears come out because it does affect you. You never, you do get past it, but just like death, you never get over it. It is a part of your life. And it, every time you talk about it, it gets easier to talk about it, and you have to talk about it. You have to purge. You have to cry. You have to let it out, because if you hold that in, you're going to do so much damage to yourself. Not about. It's not even about people you get involved with. Yes, that causes issues too, but you're doing so much damage to yourself because you're holding that back, and you don't realize that you're allowing people to come into your life. And just the past couple years, guys, I used to do friends with benefits, and I never had any problems with it. But just in the past couple of years now, I've realized all the damage I've done to myself by giving that piece of myself away, that's how I protected myself. I wouldn't let myself develop feelings for somebody, even though we cared about each other as friends and we could have sex. But I realized how much damaging, you know, how much damage I did to myself internally because I gave pieces of myself away that I shouldn't have. And I regret it to some degree because... Those people will never call me to come hang out with them again without that expectation of sex being attached to it. So I feel like I've lost parts of my friendships with these other people now that I've realized that I shouldn't have done that. And the other thing you mentioned was, well, you said the word date rape. And that is a common phrase. And I've said it. And yet it's one of the most 
it's one of those words I just hate because it's, it's completely contradictive. There's no such thing as a date and a rape. And these sexual predators, now some, there are situations, I'll be the first to admit, there are situations where um, two consenting adults, one person simply doesn't have a good moral compass. Let's say the male. He doesn't have a good moral compass. Uh, she says stop, and he does not. Now, is he a sexual predator or is he just a bad character? You could argue he's a bad character, but there are those, and I'll argue that there's more of them that are truly sexual predators that use the, the benefit of a darkened bar as a crime scene. They'll use the benefit of alcohol as a tool, like a weapon, a, a knife, and they will absolutely target individuals who have had too much so that they're, uh, you know, they're sloppy drunk. Uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. They're a state of euphoria. They're more acceptable, that sort of thing. And they'll try to pick people that have this one friend or maybe a friend that already has a guy with them so they won't be paying attention. That is a sexual predator. That is not a date rape. That is a sexual predator who's using a very insidious um, avenue. And we've seen it so many times where they will absolutely declare, declare it was a consent issue when in actuality, you know, they had the intent to rape all along, all along. So I think as a culture, and again, I really applaud the hashtag, excuse me, hashtag uh, Me Too movement. I applaud where we are. I, I, I wouldn't go as far as say it's a paradigm shift for the better, but I would absolutely say we are at a better place in terms of believing individuals or at least giving them the benefit of the doubt rather than discounting. Well, you yeah, know. look at Corey Feldman. For many, yes. many years, he talked yes. about stuff that was going on in Hollywood and his best friend who eventually died because of the drug addiction and stuff that yes. was going on to, to mask all that. And I always believed him because the one thing as a victim slash survivor, when you see or hear another one tell their story, you know they're believable. And even at that point, the police, I guess we had someone on the show talking about it, they were targeting Michael Jackson for stuff, but they still weren't listening to Corey because he was just a kid. And it's taken him many years. He went to Washington and helped pass a bill. And now all these years later, I mean, we see how fucked up he's become but through his journey he is now shedding light on all of this and people are starting to believe what he said back in the the 90s and the 80s and i just feel so bad when i see other victims come out and then they're victim bashed it's like you don't know what you're talking about you're just you have no clue you shouldn't have done all those drugs that's what happened Put the blame on you? No, you're the victim. And that's the hard part. And that goes right back to what Kirk was talking about in terms of in order to stop the cycle of abuse, not just within the victim themselves, but with these power brokers, the individuals who in the, the Hollywood elite. And again, I'm picking on Hollywood and as well they should be picked on. But that is in every aspect where there is people of power. Mm -hmm. They will absolutely abuse. So not only do we need to do what's right for these victims so that they themselves don't end up re, you know, victimizing themselves, others. We also need to hold accountable the powerful out there. And it's like, you know, we all know what a bad activity is. You know, like I talked about frauderism, you know, that the guy, you know, way too close to the girl in front of him, you know, in line or at the bus stop or at the subway. We, the community, the village needs to say, what the hell are you doing? You know, confrontational? No, but call it out. 
That's a scary thing sometimes because it is. It's it's you know you don't know if what you're doing is right or wrong because you don't know how the other person's going to act or react to what you're doing or saying. But I'm with you on that. I anytime I'm around people that do anything that looks just way too suspicious for me, being a survivor, I will call it out. And I've gotten a lot of flack for doing that. But you know what? I would rather be there to give that person that, that saving grace and pull them away from a bad situation than be the one who watches them being carted off in an ambulance and then watching them have to go through something that's just so traumatic because you know how it is. You've worked, you've seen this, you've seen victims in your career. This is fucked up stuff. Yeah. And if you make a mistake and there's always that fear of making a mistake in a situation like this, whether it's legal or just embarrassment, if I was, and I can say this with complete, complete confidence and, and open transparency, if someone were to say, oh my God, what the hell are you doing? If I was doing something, it's like, oh my God, I had no idea, I apologize. And a good example of that is um, you know, just walking up to a, a young lady and, and talking with her or something. If that freaks her out, it's like, oh my God, I had no intention whatsoever, I apologize. The fact that this bothers you to that level should not embarrass you to confront me. It should embarrass me that I put you in that situation. Um, my, I had a situation, and again, this goes back to the three A's, uh, you know, being not just aware of your environment, but also acknowledging it and acting upon it. My mom, and we've been talking about children, we've been talking about adults, and I kind of want to talk about the elderly community. Um, when my mother lost her husband, and she went through a horrible grieving period. And she finally got with a girlfriend. They were finally going to do something. Go to Hollywood and have a nice vacation. And I was so relieved. She was moving on with her life. That part of me, I had this gut feeling. Like I need to kind of have this talk with her. As being, having been a rape detective and an expert in the field, I felt like I needed to have this talk about these three A's that I talk about so much. But I didn't want to because I didn't want to rain on her parade. I wanted her to, you know, embrace that. But as I'm walking out the door, I turn around. I said, I got to talk to you real quick. I'm, and again, this is awkward because this is the, the child talking to the parent, albeit I'm 40 and she's, you know, 70. And I explained to her, I said, when you're in a situation, I don't know what type of situation you're going to be in, but if you're in a situation in Hollywood and there's someone that's really weird acting, you know, groping himself, talking sexual, whatever, don't look away. Be aware of your situation. That's the first thing. You're aware that he was there, but then acknowledge it. This is, is sexual talk from somebody who may be homeless, transient, not to suggest every homeless, transient person is a sex offender, but they are out there. Sex offenders have a hard time finding a domicile to, to be accepted when they get out. If it's not family, many, many, many apartment complexes will not accept them, right. and they are allowed by law to be released at an intersection. So they're out there. They are. And I told her, I said, now you need not just acknowledge it, but now act upon it. And what would that, would that be? Well, that would be just walk across the other street, take out your cell phone, take a picture of him. You know, make him aware because predators don't want you to be aware of them. They want to act in the darkness and they don't want to be seen and identified later. And thank God I had that conversation with her because when she went back, she said, Darren, I'm fine. Everything's fine, but I got to tell you what happened. 
she had gone out and she was going to visit the, um, I want to say it was the sign, you know, the Hollywood land sign that used to be. And her and her girlfriend went out to the front where the taxis are. She got in, then thinking nothing of it, but something was bothering her. And I always talk about trust your intuition. It's a fire alarm going off. You need to be aware of it and trust it. And she knew something was wrong. She just didn't know what. And then she looked and she couldn't, the, the doors didn't have handles, which was that's a huge, that's a huge red flag. Um, then later she realized, oh my God, I don't see the placard that says he's a, you know, um, a chauffeur, you know, a chauffeur license and so forth. And she, and she knew where she was going. There's where that situational awareness goes. You know, she knows she was supposed to be in one direction. They're going a completely opposite direction. So she acknowledged the situation. She listened to the one part of my, my space about the phone. She grabbed her phone. Her friend's just going away. You know, just talking away completely oblivious of the situation she gets on the phone and um she acts like she's going to call 911 and she said uh, can you pull over right now please and he said no no she goes you're going the wrong way he goes no no uh, you know and i don't mean to paraphrase but he w- had an accent uh, middle eastern and he uh kept saying you don't know what you're talking about he was very abrupt again this is a service industry they're not going to be abrupt not like that they're going to say oh i'm sorry let me you know they're going to be they want a tip. Super pleasing because they want the ratings. Thank you. Yeah. And and the she then dialed nine one one for real. Um, he slammed on the brakes. He threw them both out. Um, she took a picture of his license plate as he was driving away. She was still on the line with um, her friend's phone. Took a picture. She was still on the line with nine one one. She was able to get within seconds the air unit. The, he was a sexual predator who was robbing women and then raping them. Holy shit. So you, I, this, this advice in terms of being aware of your surroundings isn't enough. And, and it's something that we always talk about. We always talk about situational awareness. But you've got to acknowledge it and then act upon it. And whatever that act is, I'm, all, I'm one of those that thinks any plan is better than no plan. Well, one of the things I would say that comes to mind is taking back the power. Because... What I see in these people and these individuals is that they thrive and succeed in what they're doing based on a power dynamic. You talked about powerful people before, right? Epstein, whoever else went on the island. We've, we've, we have allegations now that are possibly made against a congressperson, right? They thrive on that power dynamic, even if, and that's the one commonality, right? Even if it's the, the chauffeur or the, or the faux chauffeur, um, you know, trying to take that power and, and, and you know, say, no, 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 you got to do this, you got to do that. Or even in a date rape situation, I, and I kind of hate the word date rape because to me it's all rape, right? It's a, minim- it's a minimization it's a way of minimizing. Thank Maybe you both for saying that, just by the way. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that, that kind of power dynamic is what they thrive off of. So to me, it's a matter of taking back the power. I mean, because if there's one common thread amongst all sex offenders, whether they're seeking the elderly, adults, children, is that they love having that power dynamic. Even the, even the exhibitionist, it wants to gets a gets a degree of thrill from the power of shocking you from from the exposure, right? Absolutely. So 100%. it is a matter of taking back the power. Say, okay, whether it's like you said, taking a picture, you know, getting out there and you know disagreeing with someone, what have you, right? Because they want that power. You, the minute you take it back from them, 
you are less appealing to them because that's what they really are thriving off of is the power. Yeah, they are just like a predator. When we say the word predator, there's a reason we say predator, just like a, a lion is a predator. They go for the most vulnerable. They don't go for the fastest running gazelle. They go for the slowest running gazelle. They're looking for a victim, as easy a prey as it can be. And if you acknowledge and you act upon it in some fashion, maybe that phone, it may be walking across the street, it may just be giving them a good look and, and saying, you know, don't get around me. Your voice is such a great tool for screaming, yelling, what have you. So I totally agree. It, 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 the, the predator has that power. You can change that dynamic so easily in terms of acknowledging it and then acting upon it because now you have the power and they're in a situation where these predators um, don't want to get caught. They love doing what they do so much. They do not want to get caught and they're not going to risk their uh, identity by continuing with this victim of this crime. It's, It's like safeguarding your house. You, know, you put it, the lights up, you put your little ring camera up there, you do all this. Are they going to hit that house or they hit the next house? Sadly, they're going to hit the next house, but good for you. We all need to be that house. We all need to be aware of our surroundings in terms of awareness. We all need to, to acknowledge that these are real threats in our lives today. And in yesteryear, we just didn't talk about it. These, this hasn't changed. We just have mm-hmm. more transparency in this world today. And then truly act because any plan is better than no plan. Ignorance is not bliss. And, you know, I'm seeing something, too. Um, back when a lot of this happened, we didn't have social media. We didn't have the Internet, you know, back in the 80s and going into the 90s. But now I'm seeing so many people. I mean, you, you can see it on the true crime networks, the online dating. It's scary as hell. I refuse to do it because you never know who you're going to run into. And that's just... I, it's not that I, it's not that I'm saying you don't do it, but you've got to take precautions. You don't go to their house. You meet in public. You just have to be more cautious because they're using all of these online tools. I had a former friend in the movie business here who was using Instagram to lure underage girls in to smoke weed with them, and these girls could have been his teenage daughters or even his granddaughters because he was my age, and he was bringing these girls to his house luring them with marijuana and God knows what else he was doing with them, but he's sitting in jail right now waiting for his trial. You know, any venue is going to be manipulated by that predator. And so when I look at like the bar setting, and again, that horrible word of date rape, which is so untrue in terms of that predator who uses that environment because it's a perfect environment to, you know, act out their crime, which is find a vulnerable drunken individual and then prey upon them. Um, And the same thing could be true in terms of the Internet. When you're on the Internet, you don't know who you're really talking to. Is it someone who's like type A's or is it some weird person who is a sexual predator who is going to prey upon you? But it's that due diligence. And again, I hate to harp on the same three A's, but be aware that when you're in that environment, situational awareness, being in that environment of the Internet, that you don't know who you're really talking to uh, until you say, hey, send me a picture of you wearing that you know, that shirt you just talked about, that blue sh- or shirt, I'm thinking to say, you know, the blue shirt that mm-hmm. has like a collar, whatever. They're not going to be able to provide that in instantaneous time if it's not true um, in terms of who you are. And, 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 and by all means, when you meet, always, always, always meet at a place where there's public. It's a lot of public, open, 
daytime where you're aware of your surroundings. You're not intoxicated at a bar at night because then you just add an extra element to the sexual predators toolkit, which is that internet. And make sure somebody in your circle knows where you're going and who you're meeting so that they have the information in case something does happen because you just don't know. And, and another area of a profession that women are very vulnerable in, and we sadly have some horrible crimes with it, is the, uh, the real estate industry where mm-hmm. women would take somebody by themselves into a home and that's a home that the victim is aware of. It has no connection with these potential predator. You don't know who this person is that made this appointment. And so sadly, there were some horrific crimes I want to say in like the 90s or early 20s. There was a few, yeah. And thankfully, most of the real estate agency. But now we're doing a lot of do-it-yourself because of the internet. You know, we're, we're, you know, Uber drivers, you know, and and the the, the eat thing where they they go and provide. We have a lot of, to your point, Robin, where people are trusting the internet as this 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 vacuum of security, and it's not. No. And anybody could be driving up and saying they're you know going to show you a house, or you know it goes back to why prostitutes were high risk victims. You know they put themselves um, in a stranger's vehicle. Well, you know? even massage therapists, because back in the day, I was one of the only licensed LMTs, licensed massage therapists here in the East Valley. So I had a lot of business, but I had to go to their homes. And I would say most of the time back then it was okay. I had guys that would ask if I would do the yank and crank or prostitution. And I said, no, I'm licensed. I don't do that. If you want to call an escort service, you're welcome to. But there was the last two situations I had got me out of the business. And I started carrying a gun with me. And the first to last was the president of the post office union in Tempe who actually worked with my father. He had me come to the union meeting building next door And he actually wanted to physically assault me. And I said, I don't do that. And I told him, I said, I'm out of here. And I said, just to let you know, Bob, my father works with you and I know who you are. Don't ever fucking call me again. Love it. And then the second one. is, And that's a power power shift right there. Well, what gave gave me power was the gun that I had. And and I know that that sounds crazy. But you know what? What I would suggest to you and everyone out there is you don't need a gun to have that power. No, you don't. You don't. It's all in your head and in your attitude and your mindset. It might have made you feel like you had that power, but you always had it. Yeah. And here's the second one, the one that made me quit doing it, because this was in the early 90s when I stopped because two in a row was enough. The guy had me come in, and I had I was getting ready to do it. I was like five minutes into it, and he had already paid me, right? Because I always require getting cash up front. That's just the way the business is. I was five minutes into it, and he kept grabbing at me. And I'm like, keep your hands off of me. I'm a professional. And he's like grabbing my hand, trying to put it in his middle area. And I'm like, you know what? This just isn't working out. I need to go. He blocked the door. And in my little duffel bag that I carried, I had my hand inside with my gun on my my finger on the trigger. And I warned him five times. I said, here is your money back. You need to let me leave. And he wasn't letting me leave. And I finally said to him, if you do not get away from that door, what I have in my hand inside this bag will be in your chest in a matter of seconds. And you're not going to live to tell the tale. He let me out. And that was the day I said, okay, I'm hanging my masseuse tag up. I'm done. Even though I was making extremely good money as a single mom, I said, I can't put myself in this position anymore. It's like you said, you have to assess everything. And that just scared the living shit out of me. I said, I can't do this anymore. Because as we got into the 90s, even though 
earlier you have massage parlors where they do all that extra stuff or alcohol escorts that do everything. I finally got to a point where it scared me. And here I was in my 30s just going, I'm, I have to be done with this. I don't care. I'll find another way to make money legitimately where I'm not being put in harm's way. Because as a sexual assault survivor, the last thing you want to do is walk into a predator's house or apartment where they control everything because you never know if there's cameras there you don't know if they have weapons you don't know if they have people in the other room where they're waiting to gang rape you take you into sex trafficking i it scares me when i see these young girls today doing that you know going to people's homes yeah you may have a driver outside but it takes less than a second for somebody and most of these girls are, are not big and muscular. They're, they're tiny girls. And it, it doesn't take much for someone to overcome them. Yeah, these, these predators are very smart. I mean, again, it's every aspect of life. So they're going to have dumb ones. You're going to have, you know, average people like myself. You're going to have very smart, intelligent sexual predators. And when you're in a job that's a high-risk environment based on the very nature of the job, whether it's you know the escort service, whether it's Dancers. massage, whether it's, whether it's the real estate, whether mm-hmm. no matter what it is, where you're putting yourself in a vulnerable situation, you have to be keenly aware and so that you have these safeguards in place. Somebody knows you're there. Making, again, that power shift that, that Kirk was talking about, making them know, making this client know um, my husband is outside, you know, that sort of thing, you know, changing that dynamic that, you know, I'm not going to be a victim. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm aware of my surroundings. I'm aware that I can acknowledge when there's a potential threat, just a potential. I always equate it to when I do lectures about a fire alarm. If you're in bed and you're sleeping and you hear the fire alarm, you're now aware that the fire alarm is off. Are you going to acknowledge that there could be a real fire? I mean, yeah, it could, it may not be, but are you going to acknowledge the possibility this could be a real fire? Right. And then you're going to act, and it's simply getting your lazy butt out of the bed and checking the rooms. It's that simple. You know, have a plan in place, and because again, we, we talk about this so much, trusting your intuition. And when you're in a, a, a hazard, I don't want to say hazardous environment, but you're in a workplace that could be fraught with hazards, uh, whether it's the um, you're at risk because you're going in some stranger's home based on the service industry, whatever that industry may be. It could be delivering food, delivering pizza. We had a pizza, famous case of the pizza driver, um, bless her heart, that delivered pizza. It happened to be an abandoned home. She didn't know. Oh, and man. then they took her, took her somewhere and raped her and then killed her. A oh. uh, horrible case in the uh, the Phoenix area, quite frankly. Um You've got to be aware of your surroundings at all time because these predators come in all, not just all shapes and sizes and professions. All sexes too. And and thank you. Now, having said that, you know, I've dealt, again, 30 years, 10 years specialized specifically nothing but, and predominantly it is male. That's why half the time my pronouns are he and, and so forth. But absolutely, we have seen female sexual predators. Many times I've seen them in the, um, the school industry, quite frankly. Um, we've seen them in other aspects. You know, I'm working on a murder case right now where it was a female that was involved in this murder. So yeah, to, to that point, so please do not hang everything on the fact that I'm saying, you know, a male or he. It, it can be, absolutely, absolutely. But just understand that they are out there. They really are. And we're thankfully, because of the internet, 
you know, we talked about the bad part of the internet. Thankfully, because we have an internet, we can have discussions. You can talk. And thank God for people like you, Robin, who are willing to come on a show, be so vulnerable, talk about this pain. This is not easy for you. I, I've seen it in your face and your eyes. This is not easy for you. But you're helping people, and it, it takes a village. It does get easier the more you talk about it because you're purging it. But and you, you're helping. You still feel the emotion. And that's something that I always tell everybody, look, you can't hide in the dark because this shit will eat you up. I've seen so many of my friends. I mean, I just found out a recent family member was molested when he was a kid and he just spoke out about it. And, you know, you're in your 50s. And how many years ago was this? Oh, my God. We were like eight, nine, 10 years old and he's in his 50s. And I have another friend that went through family molestation and his brother did it, and the parents knew and said nothing. And apparently all the siblings had gone through it. And it's like alcohol is that trigger. That, that Every time they get triggered, it's the alcohol. And they're now trying to work through therapy. But you see it a lot of times. It's usually in the late 40s to the 50s. I mean, everybody, all those Boy Scouts that were molested, now they're coming out. The whole thing with the church all of this stuff. Even the girls with R. Kelly, they're now coming out. They went there to his mansion because they wanted to be a part of his world. But then what was he doing? Locking them in a room with a bucket so they could go to the bathroom? About the power. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to that power. And then it goes back to the idea of, you know, embarrassment and not being believed and things like that. And believe me, I've, I've dealt with cases where I think people have been falsely accused uh, it happens. It happens. Which to me is like one of the, and I've even had cops tell me in candid moments, especially there's a divorce or something else, the accusations of molestations that Child, they hear. It's very common. It's it very common, which is sad because it, it takes away from the real victims and it takes away from someone like Robin because, and, and you know, unfortunately, or, and I don't know if there's reason for this, these people that do falsely accuse never get held to account. A false allegation, as you well know, I'm, Telling yeah. this to a lawyer is yeah. a misdemeanor. I had a case where I was able to prove this young lady who made a complete false allegation, completely was able to prove it, and she was looking at a misdemeanor. She simply went to a different state. There's no extradition. Yeah. Yeah. I had a guy who spent nine months in custody on a sexual assault claim where the girl claimed she was too drunk to consent. But she, the minute her brother walked in the room and caught her having sex, she stood up, put her clothes on, and they were ha- they, her and her brother each drove separate cars to this party. She got up and drive home, drove home. And I asked the officers, "Did you check her VAC? Anything else when you got?" No, she was fine. It's like, come and, on. And I think that's why I love the the hashtag Me Too movement. It's just important that we understand that we don't discount. It's not that we believe. 100% mm-hmm. every single time, regardless of what anyone says, because that doesn't make any sense. But we, we don't discount right. any allegation. That's really the key, because when you don't discount it, that means you'll listen. And that's what we need to do. The word believe really shouldn't be used. It should be we don't discount and we listen. And then that's when things either do make sense or don't make sense. And we don't discount it based on the accusation is against somebody powerful. You're right, because if we discount it, we're not hearing it. Thank you. People want to be heard. I think that is the biggest element in the process. And I think it goes back to something we were saying earlier about when we talk about 
the prior molestation and things coming out 40 years later, right? Mm-hmm. And what was the impetus for that? And in my experience, there's a lot of times there's interaction with the psychologist. There could be some other tipping point with addiction or, or some other sort of problem that that becomes a tipping point for opening up this cavalcade because I think, you know, we see men and women react in different ways. I think men become more violent. And we were talking about men versus women offenders. I think men become more violent, more angry, and want to act out. Women, on the other hand, become more self-loathing. They blame themselves. They sleep around with everybody because they have no self-love. That's me raising my hand. And and with, with Robin's situation with her father, it wasn't just that he didn't believe her. He didn't listen to her. He did not listen to her. Neither one of my parents did. And you know, that's the worst part about it. Because once you're silenced like that, and things start happening, I ended up in an abusive marriage after that, because I broke up with the guy who became my first husband a month before, you know, we broke up. And then in December, I got raped. So I broke up with him in October, December, I get raped. The following year, I find out I'm pregnant. I'm going to get an abortion because I believe it's the child of the rape. But turns out I'm four and a half months So then I reconcile with my son's father and I get married and I end up in an abusive situation because I modeled what my parents did. I ended up with a man that didn't let me have a voice and he took a lot more than my voice away from me. And I became more like my mother, very submissive and never spoke out. But I also didn't speak out because my parents never heard my voice. So I felt like I couldn't go talk to them and say, hey, this is what's going on in the house. And where that ended up with me, and some of you have heard this story, you've read the first book, Victim No More, but where that ended up with me was in effect losing my daughter because that man had me so trapped, I couldn't speak, I couldn't tell anybody what was being said every day. And I ended up losing my daughter because of it, because he gave her away. He didn't want girl children. So the fact that my parents silenced me at 17, I couldn't go to them. And I believed the power trip that he was on threatening me every day with, if you say anything to anyone, I'm going to kill our son, make you watch and kill you. And I lived with that for another two years before that marriage broke up. But I still couldn't say it to anybody because I had been silenced. And that's exactly true what you're saying. You have to listen. And I think that's when we talk about Robin at 17, and Darren, I know you could speak to this as well. We talk about the five or six-year-old that wants to be heard on that regard, right? Maybe dad, maybe an uncle, something like that. The We talk about the power dynamics. The power dynamics are such that dad's the breadwinner. Mom doesn't want to break up the relationship. Mom doesn't want to acknowledge that her husband has a, a sexual predilection uh, for children. So she doesn't even hear the child, right? And so... How much? How many more? How many? How many more acts are being suppressed because that seven-year-old knows that it, the, these allegations are going to break up the whole family. Mom doesn't want to hear them. Why is anyone else going to hear them? It's going to cause all this pain, and they just internalize that. That's too much and shit it, for any kid to internalize. And, and, it, and that's the problem. It comes out later, mm-hmm. whether it is in similar behavior as an adult or some kind of addiction as an adult. That's why, you know, that intervention to me and being heard and having forms for which these things can be heard is the first step in stopping this cycle. And when you talk about 
the breakup of the family, I would say close to 90% of the cases I dealt with, where it was a, a father or brother, one of the grooming techniques, you know, there's always the alcohol, the paraphernalia, the, the drugs, the porn, what have you. One of the other grooming techniques to, to ensure silence is put the onus on that poor victim that you're going to destroy our family if you tell our secret. What horrible crime that is, how insidious that is, on top of the physical nature, on top of the trespassing nature, on top of all the other things, this suspect has now put upon this poor little victim that the family will be destroyed and it's your fault. So what happens when they finally can't handle it enough? And, they, and if you will, I hate to use the word slip, but they go to school and they slip to a friend, the friend tells teacher, and now they are mortified. And I got chills because yeah. how many children I've talked to about this makes me want to cry, where they talk about, oh, my God, please don't take daddy away. And it just absolutely rips your heart when these monsters, and again, I go back to the monster part of it, where they absolutely, and talk about the emotional pain of not just having been, you know, the, the trespass and, and, and what is love, you know, that, what daddy doing, that's not love. And then to feel like it was your fault and that victim bashing and taking that on. So be careful um, when you're a parent and you hear any allegation. Do not discount it. Listen and absolutely be careful of your words. Simple things, and I know you can definitely attest to this, Robin. Uh, so many, so many um, teenage victims that have went out and, and drank and so forth. The first thing that the parent says, why were you out? Why were you drinking? What are you wearing? These have nothing to do with the culpability of the crime, of the allegation. So, Right, I'm your child. So why aren't you doing something for me? And listen, and as a defense attorney, you can attest to this. The last thing you want to do is start saying things to your child and start leading these witnesses and so forth. You need to listen and shut up. Well, let me ask you this, though, because you use the word monster, and, and, and I get it, and rightly so. But I'd really like to hear, I, I vocalize the kind of intervention and things like that for victims. But how do you, as, as someone who did it for more years than I did in a different capacity, how do you think society is best served in terms of the victim not transitioning into the monster? Because that's what cycles, and then there's another victim who soon becomes a monster. How do we get there? How do we stop that cycle? Because we can talk, we can bash, right? Okay, and we've bashed for years, but that hasn't solved the problem. And I mean, our condemnation is correct. Don't get me wrong. I don't want anybody to misinterpret that. Absolutely. But how do we go from little Johnny, who's a victim, who gets a pamphlet, maybe gets a couple of free counseling sessions at the county. How do we stop that person from becoming either somebody who's victimizing another child or who is acting out in, 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 in other sexually inappropriate ways? And it's a valid question, and your point is well taken. Uh, I will not take the leap that Every, and I know you're not saying every situation. No, not every. The but, bulk. But, but the you bulk. think the bulk, I see it and I don't see that. But at the same time, it's still a valid question. It could be 10% and it's still a valid question. So regardless of where you stand on this in terms of are these 
um, re reprisals are these you know the the act the victim has now become the suspect and regardless of how you stand on that in terms of how many in percentage it could be one percent um, it could be you know 99 percent. i do not know and i would not test to it but i will say this um it's that's a huge part of it so if it's a huge part of it regardless of the percentage we need to address it and the best way to address it in my opinion professional as well as personal is the the family advocacy aspect of law enforcement, the multidisciplinary approach. So it's not all driven by the police. It's not all driven by the detective. It's, it's driven by what's best for that victim, which includes the judicial process, the incarceration process. It includes the uh, sentencing, but it, it most certainly includes the doctor. It also most certainly includes a forensic counselor. It also includes follow-up visits. It, it absolutely has to be all about that victim in terms of addressing not just the crime, but who they are and empowering them to, to then truly be a survivor. Because it's easy to give these labels and in our work yeah. environment, woke environment, and, and, and I'm probably sharing way too much of how I feel about some environments, but we love to label and, 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 and I just... We need to understand that these are true victims. They've been victimized. And you can say they're a survivor, but I would argue that until we as community listen and help them and provide them with the conduit to truly be a survivor in terms of whatever ills they've had, I've seen what you're talking about firsthand. I've seen a young girl who was victimized by her grandmother. Her grandmother met a man on the internet, and all he would talk about was, show me pictures of your granddaughter. That should have been a warning sign, and it wasn't. She not only invited him to her home, she married this monster, and then she allowed them to have these overnights in their private room, a locked room, and they they even had a fake marriage. And he was so monstrous, he had pictures of her naked all throughout this sex room of theirs so we had failure to protect by the grandmother we had this again and i'm showing my claws here this monster who did this who has done this before that poor little girl was also a victim at her home that we didn't even know about by her stepdad totally unrelated and that little girl when we put her in a new home now right we get her out of that environment she immediately became an abuser because that's all she knew about love. She knew it from her grandfather. She knew it from her, her father figure. And now when she goes and she has, you know, quality time with some person and all at the age of 12 and she absolutely became abuser. So your point is well taken. We need to look at her the damage. I would argue is done with that grandfather monster. You're right. But then more damage. It's like a, it's a cycle. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cycle. And that's what I'm talking about. Breaking that cycle because we can condemn, and, and as I said earlier, rightly so. But if we really want to get serious about not making more victims, you know, you talk about the, the girl, I guess she's abusing, right, abusing at 12, which makes perfect sense, right? That's all she knows of love. There's this over-sexualization. So I guess the question is, because it sounded like she got some intervention, et cetera, but how do you prevent, I don't know if she was eight or nine, let's see, she was eight or nine, she starts getting abused. She gets out, she gets taken to, foster care or what have you and start sexually abusing her her siblings which is i'm assuming what you're what you're pointing to but 
even if it's not, it, it's, you know, the, the point is still there. How do we prevent that girl who's taken out of the home from, again, reoffending because that's, that is imprinted in her brain? How do we prevent that? And I'll take it to that simple three A's that we, we talk about the victims, right? You know, about not being a victim. But I think we can take it to this same level in terms of this multi, multidisciplinary approach to helping these victims is First of all, be aware that this occurs, and it does occur, and I'll grant you that. I don't know what to what level, right. and you think it's the bulk. I don't know. Um, act on it, N- not just aware of it, not just acknowledge it, but then act on it so that we have some type what of system. That, what does that mean for the girl you're talking about, though? Because it seems to me like uh, uh, there was a certain amount of intervention. She's removed from the home. She's taken it. But what— what stops her from re- reenact? That's the part that was lost in the recovery. And that's the part where the awareness it comes into place. In other words, not just be aware this occurs, but us as a multidisciplinary approach of this advocacy center to not just be aware of it, but then to educate these parents and educate these foster homes, educate everyone else involved that this is a possibility until we get her enough help or him enough help to the pronouns. Give them because many, many boys are violated. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I would say equal number as young girls. And we need to, as a society, as, a, as the village, we need to be not only aware that this occurs, but we need to then acknowledge it amongst ourselves within the system itself that this can happen, and this has happened, and this will happen. So we need to have you know, protocols in place so that how does that stop? Well, it's all about counseling. It, it really is all yeah. about counseling at that point. All the incarceration in the world isn't going to help that young girl. She's not going to look and say, well, grab pops in jail and so is, you know, my stepdad. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to ever, ever touch a little boy or a little girl. And at 12, she's not going to have that kind of process, Zero. processing Zero. ability, right? She's just going to have that imprint it's and just she's going to move forward. So yeah. we need that counseling. We need that forensic counseling, that true counseling that understands the criminality of what occurred to her and how it can create and I'll use the word monster, it could create, you know, this young, beautiful, sweet thing, this victim into a future monster. So we need to be aware of that and have the protocol in place. And I would argue in some ways we do, because I've seen a lot towards that. And a lot of the forensic counseling goes hand in hand with the um, advocacy centers, good advocacy centers. Um, You know, again, I, I, have we gone far enough? No. But having seen what I saw in the 80s, having been a cop, where we sit them down in a hospital ER and just wait till there's no injuries in the ER, and then they get to be seen, and, and, and because they're a crime scene, we get them back again, and all they know is the cop. Where now we have advocacy center where they go to this beautiful place, and most of them are really – the first thing a forensic counselor, a forensic detective says to a young child – you're in a safe place. It's the first thing we say, but we, it doesn't end there. We need to continue this understanding 
um, judicially speaking, this understanding that we treat these victims a lot different for a lot of different reasons in the judicial system. You know, when's the last time you saw a victim be handed, you know, a teddy bear or be talked to like you're in a safe place? And we t- we're judicially speaking, we're allowed to do certain things that we couldn't do with any other victim. Uh, we can do with these children because they are so impressionable. And that impression was, was made by a, again, I'll use the term monster, who created a crime. And for that child to defend is high. And yeah. it's, it absolutely it's, is. It's so hard, too, because when you, as a child going through this, you trust adults. And adults are the ones that you can't trust. So how, you know, moving forward, it's difficult because even me, I've learned a valuable lesson because I went to a center against sexual assault to get through what I was dealing with because no one would listen. I couldn't tell my friends. I couldn't tell my family, obviously. And the first mistake she made opening her mouth, this counselor, was, I know how you feel. (laughs) You know what, bitch? You've never been raped. You don't understand. You're not in my head. You're not in my heart. You don't even have a fucking clue how I feel. How dare you sit across from me and dismiss me in that manner? I couldn't couldn't trust another. Horrible. At this age, I couldn't even trust another counselor. They offered me another one. I said, fuck you. I'm out of here. You guys don't get it. I need someone that has been there that gets it. So they understand because no one gets it. I can't talk to people that don't get it, that don't understand it. So you do have to have that advocacy. And I tell everybody, look, I have tons of friends that are going through therapy, that have been through therapy. It has worked wonders for them. The key to it is if you don't find the right one the first time, don't give up. Keep buying, keep going. Keep looking for somebody until you find the right person that's going to sit there, shut the fuck up and listen to you and give you the support you need. Because the number one thing again, guys, is like you said it several times, you have to find that person that's going to listen. It's a validation for you to be able to share what you've gone through. Otherwise, you know, platforms like this, I would never have jumped on a platform like this after being on regular radio. But the fact that it does exist That's the reason why we do this as the collective. We come on and talk about these subject matters because I'm so sick and tired of people saying, don't talk about it. It's shameful. Don't fuck you. This is what I've had to live with. I am not going to live with shame anymore. There is no reason why anyone has to. And and that, that I think is such a big, important point that Robin just made about shame because we think about the young girl you were talking about, say a single digit girl who turns 12 she's probably doesn't want to talk about it anyway she's not going to want it she's not going to want to talk to you she's not going to want to go to court she's not going to want to talk to a counselor she's not going to go out and her parents probably don't want to ignore the situation as well right so we don't have that kind of intervention and we need to remove the shame the stigma there's something about you know it's so funny when we talk about the true crime world right and i was listening to a, a common friend of ours rebecca sebastian and she was talking about hey, look we, we can talk about murder all day for some reason but we can't talk about sex or sex crimes there's nothing in that true crime genre about it's somehow more taboo because it's sex and sex is just treated differently in in our country and i think we really need to not have that shame associated with talking about this kind of violence because it's like any other. Why is a sex crime harder to talk about than a murder? That should not be. And the I case. think that's why I keep looking back and I, I keep sorry, I keep harping on this, but the uh, hashtag uh, Me Too movement to me was so huge because it's to that point. It was these these powerful um, 
people that weren't held accountable and the young starlets being in their minds forced upon these bad situations. And this is really, even though it's huge, it's a microcosm of all professions in terms of the powerful. Mm -hmm. And many men are held in powerful positions. Many of the predators are men. Um, I'm not saying it makes them predators. I'm saying they already have it in them. You either have a moral compass or you don't, but there's also those who have. have but it that. can be skewed as a child Absolutely. when you're a victim. It can Absolutely. be skewed. So I, again, that's why I think we are at a better place than we were 10 years ago. The problem is that this effect has such ripples that we could do everything right. Theoretically, we could do everything right and we won't see the effects of it in 10, 20 years. Yeah, you're right. Wow. <sighs> but we're talking, and that's the main thing. And that's yes. why platforms like every podcast, like our, our Rebecca, our friend, yeah. who has a wonderful podcast, yes. by the way. Uh, Kirk, you have a wonderful uh, podcast as well in terms of your, uh, um, your site and, and, and Get Real. I mean, these are really, you know, in this era of podcasts and streaming, it, it's, you know, when, when the internet came by, I am immediately voided it I, I i knew the the dangers of, of sexual predators hiding in, in you know in in the internet in the dark in plain web sight. thank you yeah but that's how we get so much instruction and good information and that's how we can help educate so you know it's just like anything else we need to understand the venue be aware of it and use it to to the community's best advantage and that's why i applaud both of you for what you do individually as well as uh in your profession thank you well you as well yeah you you are the true on the forefront of this and that's why i'm so glad to to talk about this with you and to have these dialogues with you because to me i just saw such a cycle in what in my work when i really got into some of the family dynamics i mean i've had cases where it's multi-generational incest disorder. It makes you want to throw up. Even, you know, as a guy, it was kind of grizzled at that point in time, but it was, you know, nobody saw anything wrong with it. Nobody was talking about it. The cycle wasn't breaking. And I see so many people that were in these cycles. And it, and it might not even be sexual acting out, right? They were a victim. They're, then, they're, then they're doing something else. They're, they've got all this anger for what happened to them as a child. And they release it in this in this manner. Um, I think that's more common in the case of what we would call, you know, rapes than 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 molestations. But so, yeah, to me, I just want to see every effort made to start breaking this cycle. And I think conversations like this do that. And those people, there might be somebody out there listening, and that's why it's so important. And Rob and I applaud you for bringing this subject out here because there might be someone listening to this right now who says, "Okay, it's my time to stand up." It's my time to need to be need to be heard, and you know that's why I think it's so important to get these conversations out there. And if you are a victim, Darren could probably say this better than I can. But if you are a victim, if you are experiencing these things, get heard, be heard, and they in can whatever always, capacity. They can always contact me too because and, I don't mind. And what's beautiful about that is the laws are there to protect you the whistleblower for lack of a better phrase for those individuals who are let's say one degree separated from that victim let's say you are that sister you are that aunt you are that individual who sees what's going on you have enough red flags where you not only are aware of the possibility you acknowledge the possibility and now that act is contacting authorities with 
regardless of what state you're in, there is a Crime Stoppers program in every single um, province in the in the world. It's international, so there you get to stay anonymous. There is child protective service type agencies in every county and across the nation. There are the police, local police. There are so many people that and and the nonprofits that are involved. There are so many entities, you know, and to include school that you can speak. But that's the key. You have to listen. And then they have to be heard. And you have to be an advocate for those individuals that can't be an advocate for themselves. And I think that applies to because all of us, really. Because when I think about when you were talking there, Darren, I thought about, I want to say his name's Nasser, the gymnastics. Oh, Larry Nasser. Nasser, right? Oh, God. The I, gymnastics hmm. coach. And that went on for years. And, and we have all sorts of, there's other, Paterno, Joe Paterno, right? And some of these other people. People know things, and if you're not even involved in this, doing what you can to break the cycle is just so important as well because sometimes because victims feel like they're not going to be heard, and certainly perpetrators, predators, monsters, whatever you want to call them, aren't going to confess. True. Right? I mean, you had a rare occasion, Darren, that other people involved need to say something when they see something because – I don't believe for a minute that, I mean, I know Paterno, one of Paterno's assistants, um, Sandusky, I think he, you know, he got turned in eventually. But, but ultimately, there are people out there that are seeing this stuff and the importance of interceding and making sure that that cycle is broken. I can't be understated on my end anyway. And I think that goes back to the platform at the bus station. When you mm-hmm. see that guy rubbing up as a girl, you know, as an individual, you say, you know, as a man, you step up and say, hey, buddy, stop that. Yeah. It goes to every walk of life. And professionally speaking, when there's something going on, again, I hate to go back to the, my three A's, but you're aware of the situation uh, and you acknowledge it to yourself and now you have to act upon that and do the right thing. Can you, I add a fourth A into that? Please. Accountability. Absolutely about accountability. And yeah. if you are the individual that has this issue, you are the individual that has this sexual paraphilic trait, you have this deviant desire and you can't control yourself, that's where especially the accountability comes from and get yourself help because there are people that specialize this that, you know, again, <laughs> that's way out of my, uh, I don't wear that hat. Right. <laughs> But it's, but it's important because that is, I think that there are people out there, say, for example, the g- gentleman that approaches you, that didn't want to do it. I think there's generally a high segment because a lot of people in these positions um, are, quote, unquote, normal. They blend in, right, with Larry Nasser, probably respected, you know. In all practical um, appearance. Yeah, well, in all parents practical were in the room when it was happening. Right. Yeah. But, but I'm just using him as an example. Yeah. We have the, they are able to blend in, right. you, like you said, preachers, whatever the, whatever the profession might be, right? So they have this, this sort of access to these, these sort of people. And I guess the point being is that if we don't intercede, and I kind of lost track of my thought here, but, but getting those people to speak up, getting those onlookers to speak up, and getting an, having there be an avenue, even if it's the person themselves, that's, that's where I was going with this, even if it's the person themselves, they need to have a place to go. As unseemly as it might be, I know most people out there might be listening and saying, oh, they should just put a bullet in their head, all right? Okay, well, they're probably not going to do that. But what if they're a person who really doesn't want to act on that? Where do they go? You know, we created laws for uh, 
young women that have a child that are desperate and they can go to the, uh, the fire stations. Right. You know, and yeah. a lot of states have that, safe that safe haven. haven. Thank mm-hmm. you. And I'm not suggesting for a second that a, um, a homicidal person, a sexual predator has that safe you know, haven. But I will say this, there are people out there, as you know, as well as I do, that have this predilection, if you want to call it this, this sexual paraphilic trait, this, this deviation that they absolutely live these horrible, sad. And again, I, I, my heart bleeds for them. And, And yet I worry about them becoming that criminal. So because I worry about them becoming that criminal because of their, you know, can they, would they trespass upon this? Will they end up getting, um, you know, the, the material to increase this desire, i.e. masturbatory material? Um, I want there to be that type of location where they can go to get help and get treatment. And that goes to what Robin was talking about, about accountability. So you, you have the three A's as far as awareness and, and acknowledging and, and acting as far as, you know, as a potential victim, as a witness, and then as the predator or excuse me, as someone that has this desire, you have the accountability to protect the community and do us right. And I will applaud you another A. Wow. (sighs) That was a pretty uh, intense conversation, guys. You were awesome, Robin. Uh, Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for sharing such, uh, you know, the intimate details of something so difficult to share. And and I know this is radio and you don't see the the absolute sadness in in her eyes, but it's everything I can do not to cry. Well, you know what that is. And I had this discussion with another show host the other day. When we're talking about this, I feel that emotion coming from down in my gut. And I call that a lot of things. I call it my soul. I call it my gut. But I also call it my inner child. So what you are witnessing is actually a soul cry. Because that inner child has been going through a lot of healing the last couple of years. So when I talk about these things, I know Kirk and I have talked about it before. The emotions surface. It's not that I'm not over it. Because you never really get over it. I've found a lot of healing but I have to keep purging it because that inner child is still healing. And a lot of it is because I am taking care of my parents. So a lot of that floats right back around to what my safety net is for me and what I feel comfortable with. It's not an easy thing to step in the role of being the only child that's taking care of the parental units, especially given that I have felt like an orphan since the age of eight and having tried to trust my parents through the years has been very difficult. So I'm still healing that inner child and I will always be a work in progress. None of us are perfect, but that's what makes us the most beautiful thing in the world because we're imperfectly perfect. This is the way we are supposed to be. And as Kirk has often said to me, my parents are the parents that I needed them to be for me because I've learned a lot from not having that strong parental unit intact for me. It has taught me many things. And as I've gotten older, I'm not afraid to talk about things, even if the emotions surface, because when you speak with other victims, other survivors, they see it in your face. They see it in your tears. They hear it in your voice. They understand that there's, it's a certain camaraderie. And I know that's a weird word to use, but I don't like to say it's a victimhood. It is a certain camaraderie, just as we saw with Dr. Larry Nasser and all those victims coming forward and reading their statements. 
that was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen on television. And I watched every single one of those, even the father that literally lunged at him to beat the shit out of him and they held him down. They took him out, but they didn't arrest him. They let him go because everyone understood. And the judge on that case, God bless her for that, letting each and every one of them women come in there and talk about their experiences. Because again, that's where we have to be. We have to shed light on subjects like this. And the fact that I'm sitting here amongst two of my dearest friends, that they know what they know about this type of stuff. You know, it's always women. And I hate to say this because it's going to sound so bad. It's always the women that talk about things. But I, my relationship with the both of you is so precious because I trust you both enough as men to come in here and talk about the things that we talk about. And it's such a gift to have this relationship with you and to consider you guys not just dear friends, but members of this worldwide collective, because each one of us here has been through shit. We all have. Everybody has. But what you two do with what you've been through is tremendous, because you offer such insight and information that not only teaches me in so many ways, but it's also a gift to everyone out there that listens. So I can never thank you enough, especially for tackling this tough subject. The honor and privilege is, is all mine. Yeah, I feel the same as, as Darren. It's, it's, it's an honor to be sitting here with you, and, and it's, I'm humbled by those words um, simply because we know what you've gone through in this, hitting this particular subject. But um, I, I continue to applaud your courage, and, and I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of people out there now that are benefiting from this. And I think, though we can't see them and they can't see your tears, I, I get the sense they feel them. And maybe they feel heard on a certain level just by hearing you. And I can't help but think, as far as the statistics, when you talked about when you opened this show, one in four. Yeah. So every, every time you see five, five people, women, one of them is hurting like Robin. And we need to be understanding of that. We need to listen. We need to never, ever discount. And we need, as society to do a better job, as Kirk was talking about, in terms of these, these predators, because the victims could become predators if we don't, as a society, embrace them and help them and listen. Wow. You know, I think this is the perfect place to end this. And I'm going to tell everyone out there, go to my website, because on my link page, there's several places there. The website's just my name, R-O-B-I-N-C-O-T-E.com. Go to the links page. I have links to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, to RAIN, which also deals with sexual assault, incest, and all of that type of stuff. There's all kinds of links on my website. We have the internet available to us now. It was not around in 1984 when I was raped. There's so many resources out there. So even if you're afraid to talk to somebody, just jump on the internet. Type into Google. It, it will tell you how to get through this. For me, counseling didn't work. It was writing. I purged that shit out of my soul onto the paper. And it's still my gift today to be able to do that. That's what writing does for me. If you have to journal it, if you have to speak it into a tape recorder, if you have to type it on your computer, if you have to go find counseling, please do whatever it is you need to do for you. (laughs) Because it's important. It's not something you want to leave inside you for the rest of your life you deserve to live a better life and it starts with loving yourself and it starts with purging that shit from your soul because you deserve better 
As always, guys, thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.